Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm going to try and stay awake for this entire episode, but if I start falling asleep and it's because I'm still dealing with jet lag because I've only been back in the country for maybe 48 hours. So you've been up to quite a bit since the last time we chatted. Do you care to lay out a, a brief chronology of everything you've been up to since we last recorded? Yeah, it was a busy, busy couple of weeks since the last recording. And uh, even the last uh, episode that we released was uh, was released while I was away. Uh, so I've been in the UK for, I guess, two and a half weeks and got all over the country. Uh, spent a little bit of time down near Oxford, a bit of time in Nottinghamshire, a little bit of time in Birmingham, and some time in London as well. So I got all over the country and got to see some interesting things. And so we'll uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about some of it. There's a lot that I didn't get to. There were a lot of people, a lot of great people that I met on the trip that uh, we probably won't get around to talking about. But I'm going to try and cover some of the more interesting stuff as uh, as it relates to what we tend to talk about here. Not to say that anyone or anything was not particularly interesting. We're just gonna I'm gonna try and cover cover what we can and then we'll loop back to other things in later episodes perhaps. Yeah, I suspect that there's a lot of things that we'll come back to and discuss in, in later episodes as they become relevant to, to other things that we're talking about. But uh there there was just way too much to cover but it's uh yeah there was a lot that happened and a lot of a lot of great great visits with interesting people. So we'll we'll see what we can get through. So to lay a baseline for everyone listening, what was the extent of your experience working on watch mechanisms prior to taking this course at the BHI? I, I had disassembled a couple of movements over the years. Uh, I've I've taken apart a few that were um, that were my own watches. So I have a uh, twenty eight twenty four at a twenty eight twenty four that I disassembled. And done, and I did some work on. There was a part that needed to be replaced on that. So, I've done a little bit of work on on common modern movements. I've also disassembled a few antique watches to be able to help assess what the problem is and and try and figure out what what can be done to repair them. So I, I've had a little bit of experience disassembling watches before, and I so I wasn't entirely green going into this course. The focus of this course was a detailed teardown, examination, cleaning, servicing of an at a 6497. So did they delve into much of the history of the 6497 for you at the outside of the course or throughout at all? Or? Yeah, we did discuss it a little bit. We discussed how Unitas originally developed it, I believe in the early 60s as a pocket watch movement. And for those who aren't familiar with the 6497, it it is a very nice little movement. Uh, it's a little bit larger in diameter than sort of your typical wristwatch movement. I want to say it's around 36 millimeters in diameter. Uh, that makes it a little bit easier to work on, especially for people who aren't familiar with it. And because it's a time-only watch, there aren't a lot of complications in there to confuse people and to force the shrinking of of components you know, as a watch goes for working on, it's certainly an easy watch to to work on. And it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pleasant experience. It's not as, it's not as difficult to deal with as, as some of the smaller movements out there. 
You can almost get away without using a loop on it. Yeah, most of the work that I did on it, I didn't need a loop. Um, now I'm fortunate my eyes are still in good enough condition that I can do most of that work without it. It was certainly helpful for some things, you know, dealing with like the the end jewels and stuff like that. It, those those become a little bit frustrating to deal with. It's tough to tell which side is up when you're when you're looking at them if you don't have uh, a, a loop. But for the most part, you can you can do a lot of that work without a loop if you've got reasonable eyes. So, how many attendees were there at the course with you? Yeah, the classroom is set up for six students, and we had six students in there, and then um, the the instructor. So John Murphy was our instructor. He's the one delivering a lot of the watch-specific courses at the BHI. And John was great. He's uh, extremely knowledgeable. He's been doing this for many decades now, and it's very clear that he has a huge amount of experience doing this kind of work and not only servicing these kinds of watches, but also teaching how to do this. So that was great. And then uh, there were five other students in there with me. And we ranged in age from, you know, sort of late 20s up into early 50s. And all levels of experience, people who had zero experience and had never seen the inside of a watch before, up to myself, where I had not only seen the internals of watches, but had actually disassembled them. So it was, um, it was a nice group of people that were in there. Uh, in terms of that experience, and everybody was fascinated with what was going on. So the questions that we got, the directions that we sort of pushed John to to talk to us about what's going on and, and how movements are designed and things like that, uh, it was really a credit to the people that were in the course with me. Uh, I, I think that with a different group of people, it, it probably would have been a less interesting course to some degree. And uh, But the everybody that was in the course had a huge thirst for knowledge of how things were designed, where things were going, how this changed, how this movement was different from other movements and, uh, and whatnot. So yeah, a great group of people. And, um, and John was, was fabulous when it came to uh, fulfilling our interest in, in what was going on. So how quickly did you guys dive into actual hands-on work and, and how much theory did you get into? Well, we were disassembling the watch by probably 11 o'clock on Monday morning. We we got right in there because of course we, you you only have really have four and a half days to to work because you know we sort of try and finish up by one o'clock on Friday afternoon. Um, we had lunch on you know at one on Friday afternoon and then we had a little bit of time to wander around the museum that's at the BHI. Uh, so really, you've got four and a half days, so you don't have a lot of time to be able to sit down and and really dig into the theory and background of the particular watch. Uh, as we went through and did some disassembly and things like that, we did talk about things like the, you know, the drivetrain and the beat count and things like that and how to calculate that. Um, so that we did, we did deal with a little bit of theory of, of, uh, you know, the gearing and whatnot in the, in the watch, but you know, we, we really did get into it pretty quickly. So did you disassemble the barrels as well, or did you just leave those as, single units for the purposes of the course no we disassembled the barrels uh we disassembled the keyless works we uh, also disassembled the uh inca block as well and um and took all that apart and diagnosed um you know sort of cleaned those and made sure that those were all uh, reassembled properly so yeah there there wasn't anything on this that we didn't disassemble that you wouldn't normally disassemble in a, you know, in a, in the course of a, of a servicing. Are there any techniques you picked up that you've found 
particularly handy or think you'll find particularly handy? Yeah, the one of the things that was particularly helpful in this case was figuring out handling techniques and just a lot of little things that you pick up watching somebody who's experienced and and who knows what they're doing. There it's the kind of thing that if you if you know what you're looking for as you watch somebody who's experienced working on something, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's someone cutting your hair or somebody disassembling a watch movement, there's all these little and just these little things that people do when they're very experienced in, in how they, you know, working on stuff. So watching the way that John, you know, left his right hand, for instance, on the bench, and instead of moving his hand, he's, you know, he's moving the movement, you know, so he'll pick up something with the tweezers. Let's say he's picking up the balance wheel, for instance, with the hairspring and everything attached. He's grabbing that with the tweezers in his right hand, but he's then pulling the movement away with his left hand. So instead of you know, sort of the delicate thing that he's holding being the thing that he's sort of moving around. He's taking the heavier object that is, you know, that's more stable and, and is less prone to being damaged if, if it falls or drops. And he's moving that away from the, the more delicate piece. You know, there's little things like that that you, when you're watching somebody who's experienced doing doing the thing that they're used to doing, they may not even realize necessarily that they're doing it, but you can you sort of start to get good habits from watching them do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And what technique or series of techniques or approaches were you taught for lubricating the anti-shock system? Yeah, that was the fun bit. I, I ended up losing my uh, my olive jewel and uh, end stone at one point while I was playing around with lubricating them. So that was, that was the only thing that I managed to lose and couldn't actually find. Uh, so that was frustrating. So we were putting a small a small amount of lubricant on the end stone and then putting that on top of the olive jewel and then putting both of those back into place and allowing the pivot from the balance wheel to sort of pierce that bubble of, of uh, lubricant that's in there and allowing it to sort of create a bubble around uh, around the end of the pivot. Uh, it may not make a lot of sense to anybody who hasn't done it, but um, that's that's sort of what we're doing. And that was one of the things that I found most frustrating. I, I had a difficult time getting a nice, a nice even bubble around that pivot and not having a little air bubble forming during, you know, around part of it. Uh, so that was, a, that was a bit of a challenge. For anyone who might not be familiar, how would you describe uh, an anti-shock system? in a watch it's described it's designed in such a way that the jewel that's holding or the jewels on either end that are holding the balance pivots have small springs basically built into it so that if something happens if you if you jolt the watch if you if you hit it hard if it gets any sort of shock those springs allow the jewels to move slightly and sort of gives it a little bit of a, a little bit of give and that way it's unlikely that the pivots are going to break on, on the balance because those are very, very delicate. Those pivots, I mean, I don't know what sort of diameter they are. We didn't have uh, we didn't have a good micrometer available to uh, to sort of measure them with, so I, I, I'm not sure exactly what the diameter of those pivots are, but they're absolutely tiny, and they're certainly susceptible to damage. So these anti-shock mechanisms are designed to sort of give a little bit of a little bit of room, a little bit of bounce to the to the movement so that if it does take a hit it'll it'll move a little bit instead of breaking 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, anti-shock systems were revolutionary when they first came onto the market. Because prior to that, a large portion of a, a watchmaker's time would have been spent replacing balance staffs because the, the pivots are remarkably delicate, very fine. On something like uh, the 6497, it'd be around a tenth of a millimeter. Most wrist watches today, you're looking at eight to nine hundredths of a, a millimeter in diameter. So it's thinner than a, a human hair. And if you have a, a fixed bearing surface and that pivot is expected to take the full brunt of, a, say, a fall onto a floor, it, it's going to snap. So the, the anti-shock systems will allow the jewels to take up that, that energy and, and push it into the spring, and the spring will restore the, the pivots back to their, their proper resting place after the, the impact has been absorbed. I know that in older pocket watch movements that I've I've seen and that I've uh, I've bought a few over the years, like something like, let's say, Hamilton 992, which was developed before the turn of the last century. So maybe late late 1880s, I think, or early 1890s is when the 992 was originally developed. And that didn't have an anti-shock mechanism in it for the balance wheel. And you regularly see those with balance staffs with broken pivots on them. Uh, so that's a very, very common problem with uh, with older movements like that where they didn't have any kind of anti-shock mechanism and people don't take care of them properly. That's the other problem. Well, on the, the lubrication side of things, uh, you might find it a little easier to drop the the setting, the olive hole, onto the capstones rather than doing vice versa. And it also helps a little bit to just put uh, the residual amount from your oiler into the, the olive hole itself and then... If you watch very closely under high magnification, as you draw it over the capsule, capillary action will actually draw the capsule up into the the chaton itself. So actually fight against gravity and then pull it right up into it, which is uh, really interesting and, and neat to see. Uh, but for the most part, in my, my day-to-day work, I, I use an automatic oiler just to make quick work of, of the job. Yeah, and now that you say that, that that is actually a better description of what I did. I was dropping the olive jewel onto the um, onto the capstone, not the other way around. Th- these are skills that I'm not used to using, and certainly not um, not as comfortable with as some other things that I do. Like for instance, if if John had sat down and said, "Hey, I, I need you to turn a new balance, and these are the dimensions for it," I would probably have found it much easier to build a new balance for that um, or a new uh, staff for that balance wheel than you know, taking apart that that shock mechanism and oiling it just because I am comfortable with turning and I do, you know, I use a lathe every single day. So in this case, I'm going to sit down and start practicing this again and practice it regularly because frankly, this is a skill that I'm going to need to know how to use more often. Uh, the movements that I'm getting, even though I don't intend to service other people's watches on a regular basis, the movements that I'm getting from Eterna need to be serviced before I can put them into a watch. They'll need to be lubricated properly, cleaned. Uh, they'll need to be adjusted properly. So these are all skills that I'm going to need to have when it comes to assembling and, and selling my own watches. So I, I'm going to be practicing these skills on a regular basis and actually uh, tearing apart movements and servicing them properly and, and putting them back together so that I am comfortable doing it. Did the course reveal any unknown unknowns to you? No, I don't think so. This one didn't. Uh, I, I had a pretty good sense of what was involved in all of these things and, and the things that I didn't know that I, or that I knew that I didn't know. 
So for instance, one of the things that I, I was not really comfortable with was the lubrication side of, of things. So doing things like disassembling the shock movement and relubricating it. That's the kind of thing that I'm not familiar with at all. And I knew that I wasn't familiar with. So I don't think there were any unknown unknowns that, that sort of popped out during the course. Uh, I, I had a I had a pretty good sense of what we were going to deal with and what was going to be revealed to me. Looking back now, how would you compare the the knowledge and skill that you had had prior to the course to what you now have coming out of it? Oh, I'm I'm far more confident now in terms of my ability to disassemble a watch and do it safely and then clean it properly, lubricate it properly, get it back together. Far more confident in my ability to be able to do that now than I was prior to it. You know, I certainly could have made my way through disassembling and and reassembling a watch without destroying it. Even something more complex than this. Uh, you know, I've as I said I've taken apart something like a a 2024 which is an automatic movement with a date indicator on it. So that's something that I've taken apart before and obviously is more complicated than than a 6497. Um, but I, I'm certainly more confident in my ability to do that now and what's what I'm looking for or how I'm doing it. Uh, so that's that's the biggest advantage that I've gotten out of this. Is I, I've certainly gotten better habits than I had before, and I'm more confident in what I was doing. This this along with some practice. Obviously, the practice is the big thing. It doesn't matter how much you know how much you know this or how how many notes you've taken while you're doing this course. If you don't practice this on a regular basis, it doesn't really matter whether you took the course or not. You're you're going to need to continue practicing it to be able to keep working on those skills and developing them. All in all, then, you'd say the the time and, and money outlaid to invest in, in this course, uh, you'd say it was worth it then for you? Absolutely. If you think that you might be interested in starting to service watches, it's certainly worthwhile taking. It's five days. Now, the course isn't isn't exceptionally cheap. I think I think it's 750 pounds for the five-day course. But at the same time, I'm coming from a, an IT background where spending, let's say, $5,000 for a week course wasn't exceptional. So it, it's certainly not, as, as some professions go, it is certainly not an expensive course. It, it's obviously not the kind of thing that someone's just going to take on a whim. It does take some planning and some money to be able to do it. Uh, but if you if you think that you might be interested in doing this, then then you should. Uh, some of the guys that were on the course, as I said, they they had never seen the inside of a watch, and they just wanted to see what the inside of a watch looked like. Uh, there were uh, other people who were interested in servicing their own watches. They collect antique watches, and they want to be able to service their own watches without having to send them out. Um, other guys like myself and and a few others, we work in some part of the trade and we need to be able to do this kind of work for our jobs. So there was a, there was a wide range of people there and, and all of us got something out of it. If you're curious about this kind of thing, it can certainly be a worthwhile course to take. And, and it's something that I think most people would enjoy. If they think this is the sort of thing they would be interested in, they're going to enjoy this course. It's, it is going to challenge you uh, unless you've already serviced watches before, uh, then this is going to challenge you. And that's probably not a bad thing. Like it'll you'll learn some things that you didn't know about, and that you and you'll get some skills that you didn't think you'd have. So it's certainly worthwhile from that point of view. Well, given the benefit you've found in taking this initial course, do you plan on taking some of the other courses that the BHI offers down the road? 
Absolutely. There there are two other watchmaking courses specifically that I'm interested in. They have a few that are probably of less interest to me, like they've got a basic lathe skills course, and uh, I think there's a few others that were, that were out there. But uh, the two that I'm most interested in, uh, the first one is an automatic, uh, servicing an automatic movement with a day-date complication on it. And I believe, you know, something like, again, the 2824 is going to be uh, sort of a common movement that they would look at for, for that kind of a course. And then the third one is uh, servicing a chronograph. And I believe in that one, they're using a Valjoux 7751. Uh, so that's got all the bells and whistles in it. That's the that's sort of the most complicated of the movements that they talk about. And again, it's a five-day course going through in the, the second one, how to service an automatic and service a day date. And then the third one is how to do a complete service on a chronograph. Now, this is something we'll probably loop back to down the road in a little greater detail. But while it's still somewhat fresh in your your memory, what was your impression of Upton Hall, where the BHI is located? Upton is a great little village, and it's it's not a very big village, and it's getting there can be a bit of a pain. I I actually hired a car while I was over there, and drove into Upton on Sunday, and stayed at a local uh, bed and breakfast that's there, and I, I'm glad that I did. It was it was worthwhile for me to drive in there. Uh, it is possible to get there by taking a, a train to Newark and then getting a cab from there. It's like twelve or fifteen pounds or something like that to get a cab into it. So it's a it's a tiny little village. It, you know, it doesn't have its own train station or anything like that. Uh, but it's a beautiful little town. The BHI is in a a, a great little building. Well, little building. It's a it's an old manor house that's there, and uh, it's a it's very nice. You know, very nice location. The grounds are beautiful. Uh, inside of the house itself, obviously, there's the offices for the BHI. Uh, but then on top of that, they also have the museum that uh, the BHI has sort of collected pieces over the years or have been uh, gifted pieces over the years, as well as an incredible library. Uh, and that's not necessarily available to uh, or accessible to the public. The The museum is. You can get into the museum as uh, as a member of the public, but the, the library isn't. But if you remember, you can request access to the library and, and be able to go through it. So were there any highlights in the, the museum or the library for you? The museum itself has a, a great collection of clocks and watches from all different time periods, uh, very modern things as well as, as older ones. Too many for me to really talk about in, in detail here. One of the fun things that they have is they have the original talking clock from the UK. Uh, those of us here in Canada might remember that the NRC has a talking clock, so you can call into a phone number in Canada, and the talking clock will read out the time accurately to you. And uh, in the UK, they started this tradition. I don't remember when the first one was was put into service. Uh, they have the original talking clock, uh, and it was a, a woman who had narrated all of the times so, you know, she would say something like, uh, you know, at the fourth beep, it will be 10 minutes past the hour. And then you would hear the four beeps. And on the fourth beep, that would be exactly 10 minutes past the hour. And the original one was actually run off of records. So they have the original machine set up there. Uh, they'll even play it as well for you. Uh, they don't leave it running all the time, obviously, because it would wear the uh, wear the equipment. But 
they uh it ran for years and anytime you called in that's what you would hear to uh be able to set your clock and i think they have the first two they have the second generation one there as well so it was kind of fun and and again there there's some interesting things in there there's a, you know there's a small atomic clock in there there's um master clocks in there for being able to set um you know multiple clocks in in a building uh, as well as classic you know regulator clocks and things like that so yeah the the museum there is great if you happen to be in the Upton area i believe the museum is open on fridays uh, it's worthwhile checking their website to find out but if you're in that area for some reason and the museum is open stop in and and check it out i don't believe there's any cost to going into it but it, it is certainly worthwhile uh taking a look through and and going into now charming as upton is you do not spend all of your time there you're also able to connect with some people that uh, you're put in touch with through the the santa fe symposium this year and in the years prior and uh, you're able to to make it over to birmingham what would you get up to there after the the week of being at upton uh, the friday afternoon i drove back to or i drove up to birmingham i should say and uh dropped off the car i i didn't really need uh need to have a car the entire time i was there so ditched the car and started walking around and uh using the public transit to uh to get around a little bit more and basically spent a couple of days touring around birmingham uh so i spent the saturday sunday sort of exploring the museums and and some of the exhibits that were on there and then uh including uh a great exhibit at the museum of the jewelry quarter it's a uh, a functional or was a functional jewelry manufacturing facility up until 1981 when the owners closed it down they they literally locked the door on a friday and gave it to the city as uh, as a museum and said here you go we haven't touched anything we've removed a couple of personal effects but otherwise the facility is exactly as is and so it's now a museum of the jewelry quarter and you can go through and see exactly how things were being made uh so that was fascinating from the point of view of a jeweler being able to see how uh, how things were being made and especially since even though it was closed in 1981 in reality it was more like a jewelry manufacturer from the 1920s not the 1980s they hadn't really upgraded anything in that time uh so that was that was kind of nice to see and in fact in- included in there were a few engines a few uh there was a straight line engine actually two straight line engines and a rose engine that were in there uh and the straight line engines were actually earlier versions of the plant straight line engines that i have uh, so it was kind of nice to see them and in fact they were in uh, in many ways they were in better condition than mine even though they hadn't been used in years and they were a little bit rusted up uh they have some parts on them that weren't uh that didn't survive on mine so I I now actually have a better understanding of how a few of those parts went together and some of the supports that were on them. So it was kind of nice to see those um, see those pieces and um, be able to chat with a few people. The tour guides that were there had actually worked in the jewelry industry uh, in their their life, so it was it was kind of nice to be able to talk to people who were actually members of the trade and and be able to see how the trade was was uh, being used in you know, sort of the early part of the twentieth century. Do you have any intent to replicate any of those components for your own engine? Yeah, there's a few things that I'll probably make uh, that that are that are worthwhile. Uh, nothing too serious, nothing too significant, but there there are a few things that um, that I'll probably replicate for my own machine. I can say with confidence that I am glad that I am a 21st century jeweler and not a 
early 20th century jeweler uh, because the working conditions were miserable and uh, and certainly far more dangerous than what I'm working in now. Uh, so I'm I'm certainly happy that I'm working in this time and not uh, not in earlier time as a jeweler. Um, so the you know the walking around some of the museums it was great. Uh, this was my first time to Birmingham, so it was nice to be able to actually visit the city a little bit and see what's going on, and uh, and see what's there. But the the primary reason for being there was to visit with a few people. Uh, as you mentioned, there were a few people that I've I've met up with over the years and and have become friendly with. So uh, Frank Cooper, he is. Um, uh, one of the heads at the Birmingham City University Jewelry Department. Uh, he invited me along to BCU to uh, get a tour of the facilities and see what's happening there and sort of use it as my home base while I was there. Uh, so I, I have to thank Frank for his uh, generosity and his uh, his hospitality while I was there. And I got a chance to see some of the interesting things they're doing. Uh, unfortunately, the students were in, weren't in class yet. Um, so I didn't see people working on uh, on projects or anything like that. But they did have an exhibit of projects from some of their alumni, and so that was nice to be able to see. They have some they have some great toys there. They're they're working on some on a lot of three D printing right now. The additive manufacturing, both three uh, D printing in resins as well as three D printing directly in metals. Uh, they have a uh, laser sintering printer that is working in silver right now. So. It was nice to be able to see some of the work that uh, that they're doing in there, and also had a chance to chat with a few of the folks at the in the horology department and uh, see what they're doing and working on. So that was uh, that was kind of nice as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. BCU actually has uh, some connection with Gibson Gold as well for their the laser sintering side of things. Yeah, that's right. They they work. With- They've worked with uh, Cookson's Gold on on a number of different things, including, uh, in fact, the printer that they've got there was um, developed for Cookson's Gold, and they're the ones that are providing technical support for it. And fortunately, Cookson's Gold is right across the street from BCU. And I've also met uh, over the years. I've gotten to know uh, David Fletcher, who works at Cookson's Gold, and uh, he was in charge of their additive manufacturing division up until recently. I think he's moved up in the company a little bit. He invited me along to be able to take a tour of Cookson's Gold. Uh, they're very similar to Rio Grande here in North America. Uh, they supply not only tools and um, and equipment to the jewelry trade, but also findings, precious metals, raw metals, uh, things like that. So they're doing a lot of their own manufacturing as well and also manufacturing for the trade. Uh, so for instance, if you're a jeweler in the UK and you're selling wedding rings, there's a very good chance that the wedding rings you're getting are coming from Cookson's Gold, uh, or you're probably ordering directly from them, or maybe through a, another another party. But uh, they are, you know, they're manufacturing a lot of findings and a lot of goods for the jewelry trade. Uh, so it was really nice to be able to see what's going on there. Uh, it was interesting to see the and be able to compare how their manufacturing facilities operating compared to somewhere like Rio Grande, which I, I was able to tour their facility last year when I was in Albuquerque. Cookson's is, I think they've been there for a hundred years now, uh, in that facility. And well, obviously they've upgraded to some later, you know, some of the latest equipment like laser sintering printers and things like that. They do also have a lot of very traditional tools there as well. Um, so using the, like a drop stamp, for instance, to be able to form, let's say a signet ring out of a, an ingot of metal, uh, you know, they still have a lot of, a lot of traditional tools there and are able to make things in in sort of a more traditional way. And they also have, you know, CNC 
lathes there for being able to turn out rings. And and in fact, they have quite an advanced CNC setup there, which was uh, which was impressive to see. So yeah, it was it was great to be able to visit Cookson's and and see the work that they're doing. Uh, they're doing some amazing work there, and and certainly are. I, I was surprised at how flexible they are in working with customers to design and make things for them. So if you're not in a position to be able to let's say make your you know make some findings for your parts or for your pieces, but you've got a design and idea in mind then they'll actually work with you to manufacture it. It was a really fascinating tour and gave me a much better appreciation for uh, how some of this stuff is mass-produced now, uh, You know how some of these findings and, and whatnot are being mass-produced. Now, on the subject of working with uh, other jewelers and makers, I know prior to leaving, you were flirting with the idea of, of possibly having them 3D print a, a case for you while you were there. Did that layout yeah i i wasn't uh i didn't think i was going to be able to, to print something while i was there um just because the um the time commitment is is a little bit high for printing something like that but i did want to see what they were doing and be able to look at the you know sort of look at the technology and and chat a little bit more with them about the ins and outs of it uh, it's something that i i probably will do at some point in the future the case that i'm working on now is not really appropriate uh for the technology they're they're just better ways of making it than than 3D printing it. Uh, but while I was there, I was able to see a few cases that they had 3D printed for other watchmakers in the past, ones that do take advantage of the printer technology. And really the only way to make those cases is by 3D printing them like uh, like they were. It was interesting to see that. It was it was it gave gave me a, a better understanding of some of the limitations of it and as well as some of the advantages of it. It's got me thinking a little bit now about future case designs and ways that I can manufacture the case or design the case in such a way that now I will actually be able to print it and or that it makes sense to print it. Uh, because there certainly are design ideas that I have that uh, I would probably ignore if all I could do was, let's say, machine them out of a solid block of material or cast it or something like that. And this will give me the ability to do some things that I, I wouldn't necessarily be able to do otherwise. I'd be interested to see how that that plays out for you. Yeah, yeah. It was certainly, it, it was it was really it was really fascinating to see some of the projects they had done for people over the years. For instance, there was a bangle that that they had done for somebody, and I picked it up and and I didn't really think anything of it because I thought that it was printed in silver, and uh, because of the 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 weight of it. It had actually been printed in platinum, which for people who aren't familiar with the differences between the two, platinum has a specific gravity, almost double that of, of silver. So for the same volume of material, the the platinum will weigh twice what the silver does. And so normally when you pick up a, a platinum item, it's very, like let's say a platinum wedding ring, it is very obvious that you're picking up a platinum wedding ring as opposed to a silver wedding ring just because of its weight. And so when I picked up this bangle, I thought that it was actually a silver piece but it was a platinum piece that had been printed hollow and so they were able to have significant weight savings by just not printing the entire thing they you know they they had a, a hollow section inside of it to to save on weight so yeah there's some there's certainly some advantages to being able to print in in the metal like that and and be able to do work that that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do and then uh, when it comes to visits i was very fortunate i was able to get a chance to speak with uh, Craig and Rebecca Struthers for uh, for about an hour on uh, on Monday morning. I had uh, gotten in contact with them a while back and they had invited me to visit them. 
And unfortunately, we didn't have a lot of time to sit down and chat, but it was nice to be able to to go in and chat with them and see what they're up to and uh, talk a little bit with them. Uh, they're, for the people who aren't familiar with them, they have done a lot of interesting work over the years on doing restoration projects on antique watches. Uh, so antique wristwatches as well as pocket watches. In some cases, rebuilding the movements, building rebuilding parts for the movements. Many cases, rebuilding the case itself and designing custom cases for people, bespoke cases for people. Their current project is their 248 project. And that is a custom-built watch that they're working on. They're, they've designed their own movement, and they're building it from scratch. They're doing some some great work with that. And it was nice to be able to sort of sit down and talk to them a little bit and talk to like-minded people who are... They're further along in the journey, obviously, than I am. But uh, I, I find them very inspiring. They They are doing a lot of the work that I'm hoping one day to be doing. So it was great to be able to sit down and chat with them and, and talk to them a little bit about what they're doing and and also why they're where they are. Um, you know, they're they're in the jewelry quarter in in Birmingham because of the the historic nature of it, and and sort of being able to chat with them a little bit about that and and the neighborhood and whatnot. It was uh, it was really good to see working working jewelers and watchmakers still in that area because unfortunately there are a lot of people being sort of pushed out through economics from that area. Uh, there are a lot of developers coming in and starting to turn the jewelry quarter into uh, a trendy place for condos so it was nice to see uh nice to see people staying there and and continuing the tradition of making things in that area and if i remember correctly just underneath where they're located is uh quite a, an accomplished company of enamelists they're in the same building as deacon and francis and their specialty is making cufflinks uh, they've been making cufflinks for over 100 years i don't remember exactly when they were founded but they're they're doing some fabulous work and they also do a lot of really nice enamel work as you say uh, so they're they're in the same building as the Struthers, and it doesn't look like they're in a rush to go anywhere. And actually, while I was there, um, they there was a lot of uh, a lot of noise coming from their new neighbors that are moving in upstairs. The Yardo Lead Pen Company is actually moving in upstairs from them, and Yardo Lead does some beautiful work in sterling silver pens, and they're using a lot of traditional techniques, including deep drawing and hand engraving and engine turning as well. Uh, so they're they're moving from a, a slightly different location into uh, into this one as a new location. So now there's some incredibly gifted and talented uh, people still in the area. Certainly there are people that are going to stay there, but hopefully they don't all uh, all get pushed out of that area. Yeah, interestingly, uh, Yardo Lead is a company we touched on all the way back at the genesis of this podcast in episode one. Yeah, it was it was kind of nice. I'm hoping I didn't get a chance to talk to them at all. They were pretty busy in terms of uh, moving their operation from one location to another. But I'm hoping in a future visit, I'm I get a chance to maybe uh, go upstairs and and visit with them because I I would love to chat with them a little bit. They're as I said, they're they're one of the few companies that are actually doing some of the things that I do on a regular basis and and in a format that I'm familiar with. So it would be kind of nice to be able to go upstairs and chat with them a little bit and see what they're uh, see what they're up to. Now, the Struthers weren't the only watch makers or horologically bent folks that uh, you were able to rendezvous with while you were over there in the UK. Who else did you get to uh, grace with your presence or vice versa? Once I was finished in Birmingham, I caught a train down to London for a few days and... Uh, while I was there, I got a chance to, to visit some ex- some great exhibits, some of which are on permanent display, some of which aren't. The the British Museum, I I went through 
unfortunately, when Rich and I were there in May, I wasn't able to get into the British Museum because they close early. And so we, we weren't able to get in there. Uh, so I decided to go through their exhibit this trip. And that was um, that was great. It was nice to see it. And as I commented on my Instagram feed, it's uh, it's almost as if the curators of that museum have designed it for me because all of the things that I'm most interested in are in four rooms that are all side by side. So it's very easy for me to uh, to walk through the British Museum because it's it's uh, all the stuff that I'm most fascinated with are, are all close together. There was also a great exhibit of 17th century English clocks at Bottoms. Uh, Bottoms normally is a auction house and this was an exhibit that was put on i'm not sure exactly what the genesis of this of this exhibit was but most of these clocks came from a single collector and it was sort of filled out a little bit from a few other collections but it was great to see this uh this exhibit it isn't really my thing i'm not i'm not really into 17th century english clocks specifically but it was too good of an exhibit to pass up and unfortunately it was only it was only on for uh for the two weeks when i was there uh, so I was able to see it. If that's the kind of thing that you're interested in, I would recommend checking out their catalog. They did uh, both a small catalog as well as a full catalog with uh, with a number of essays on the the clocks that were in there. And so if that kind of thing sounds like it's up your alley, then um, I w- get their books. They're, they would be worthwhile for someone who is actually fascinated with that time period and those um, you know those particular clocks. Uh, the funny thing is the the most interesting clock to me was actually one of the ones that was at the beginning of the exhibit. Uh, the the sort of the um, underlying commentary of the exhibit was the the technical innovation that was happening over that hundred years in England in clockmaking. And one of the ways they sort of exemplify where clockmaking had started and where it was going to was at the beginning of the exhibit they had a 15th century German chamber clock and it was actually running which shocked me i think that's probably the oldest clock i've ever seen running uh, i've certainly seen some older clocks like the british museum has a few older clocks and i think the worshipful company of clocksmiths um, they've got an older clock i believe in their collection as well uh, but this was certainly the oldest clock that i've ever seen running and then sitting beside it as sort of the bookend of the exhibit and sort of the end of the exhibit was a very early john harrison clock uh, John Harrison being the, uh, you know, his fame is, is building the first marine chronometers that were able to help solve the longitude problem. So you you go from the very inaccurate 15th century clock, which, you know, in the time that I was there, I think I was there for about two and a half or three hours, it lost five minutes in those three hours that I was there. So it's certainly not an accurate timekeeper. All the way up to the, the Harrison, which was keeping time to within a, a second every month. That innovation all happens within sort of a 200-year period, two or 300-year period. Uh, it was it was great to see the, the clocks in between and what was being done, the developments that were happening. And in that time, the, the switch was made over to uh, pendulum clocks. So that was it was nice to sort of see that changeover in technology happening in the clocks. Uh, so yeah, there was a couple of exhibits that I was able to see while I was there, which was great. Uh, but it was really the people that I saw when I was in London that um, that made the trip. I had uh, had the chance to have drinks again with uh, Matt the Watch Nerd, and uh, and so we had uh, we had drinks one night as well as uh, going out for dinner. And I also was able to make the acquaintance of a few other people, uh, including Chris Mann. He uh, does the Time for a Pint podcast. If you're into watch collecting. 
that might be a podcast you've listened to. And if you haven't listened to it and you're into watch collecting, I would recommend listening to it. Uh, He started up Time for a Pint as a sort of a meetup group for watch collectors to be able to get together and talk about their watches and whatnot and uh, turned it into a podcast afterwards uh, where he interviews um, different collectors that he's known over the years and he's met through his meetups. Uh, so if you're if you've never listened to Time for a Pint, I recommend it. It's a it's a really good really good show. Uh, but I had a chance to uh, have drinks with Chris the same night with uh, that Matt was out there. Uh, there were a few of us that were were around um, chatting that night. And uh, Chris is charming. He's a uh, he's a great guy to talk to. Just a really down to earth nice guy to uh, to hang out with. So uh, fascinated with what's what's going on and and what people are doing and what they're collecting. Um, so it was great to finally meet Chris. We've chatted back and forth a little bit online for a while. And, uh, of course I've been listening to his podcast for, uh, for over a year now. So it was, uh, it was nice to finally meet up with him. And, uh, one of the things that I always bemoan when I'm on trips like this is that I always find out that there was something really cool happening the week before or some amazing, amazing get together the week after I was there. And, uh, and I wish that I'd extended my trip a little bit or changed it around a bit. And, uh, this time I, I actually missed all of the time for a pint gatherings, the normal ones. Chris tries to do a, a gathering once a month. And I think I've managed to miss the August one by three or four days. And I was missing the, the September one by about a week. And uh, when I mentioned that to Chris and I said, oh, I was you know disappointed that I wasn't able to, uh, to get together and join in on one of the regular gatherings. He uh, very kindly put together a, 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 a sort of spur of the moment time for a pint. Uh, so there were about uh, a dozen people who got together on Thursday night and we all hung out at a pub and had a few drinks and talked watches, and uh, that was a great time. There were some some really nice people to chat with there. Uh, actually, we met a few people there who uh, who were were fans of this show and had uh, had listened to this show before, and and so we were, I was able to talk to a few people who actually knew what we were talking about. So that was nice. Managed to meet a few people who, if you listen to some of the back episodes of Time for a Pint, uh, there were a few regulars there who had uh, who had been on there. So Matt, for instance, the watch nerd, he's um, he's done an episode before of that. Uh, Seth Kennedy, he's a gentleman in London who does restoration work on vintage English pocket watches, primarily sort of 17th, 18th, 19th century stuff. So much older than what I'm familiar with. And uh, Seth was great. We had uh, we had a really good chat on Thursday night and talked about a lot of different things. He actually invited me to his shop the next day where we uh we sat down and took a look at some of what he was working on some of his current projects nice and uh and had a good chat about that so yeah yeah i i appreciate uh appreciate the the chat with with seth he uh he had some interesting insight into watchmaking and and uh design and things like that because uh, he's coming from it from a different perspective where he's looking at vintage watches and and certainly old watches. So that was uh, it was nice to chat with chat with Seth mm-hmm. again. Incredibly generous and, and nice guy, and in, an incredibly talented restorer of fine timepieces. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you have a if you happen to have an old, you know, particularly a, a pre twentieth century English pocket watch, and you're looking for somebody to restore it, get in touch with Seth. He's he's uh, yeah, he really does know what he's doing. He's incredibly gifted. And then um, the other. The other gentleman that I had a, a good time chatting with was uh, Nick Bowman Scargill. He's the current managing director of the Fears Watch Company. If you go back and listen to episode 44 of Time for a Pint, uh, Nick and Chris discuss 
how Nick got into refounding the family watch company. There's actually a really amusing story in there about uh, about Nick finding out that there is in fact a or there was in fact a a family watch company that he had never heard of. And so there's a there's a good a good story behind that. And uh, I'd recommend going and listening to episode 44 of Time for a Pint to to hear Nick's story. Uh, but again, he was incredibly generous in terms of talking about uh, what he does and and talking with me a little bit about what I do. So he's, uh, yeah, he was another great resource, another great person to talk to. And as I'm, you know, as I'm finding out, of course, the the people in the watch world are all incredibly nice people and very generous with their time. So uh, everybody that I met, I there, there's no way that I could talk about everybody that um, that I met on this trip. Uh, but everybody from the other students that I was. I was in the BHI course with to, you know, to the the people at Time for a Pint, everybody that was involved, you know, that I ran into, they were really what made this trip worthwhile. And, um, and it was certainly a, a great time and, and an amazing trip. So I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to going back and running into some of these people again and, and sort of turning this into a regular thing where I, I run into these people and, and have a drink with them because it's, uh, yeah, it's, the people, as I as I find in any industry that I that I sort of get involved with, the people are are usually the reason to stick around and and sort of continue going back. And uh, the watch world is certainly no no different from uh, from other other industries I've been in. Yeah, I really ad- admire the way that Nick has endeavored to uh, uphold and, and safeguard crafts there in England, right down to the the, the paper that uh, the boxes that his, his watches come in are, are made from. That's uh... It's really quite admirable what what he's done there, uh, refounding his his family watch company. Yeah, it's it's inspiring listening to uh, listening to the story about how Nick has has gotten that that business back off off the ground. And uh, Fears was at one point a, a very successful watch company in the UK, and it it looks like he's on the right track to turn it back into a successful watch company again. So yeah, I, I'm I have a huge amount of respect for for him. Again, you know just like the Struthers, um, you know, and him um, and and Seth, people that are, are doing well in this business and trying to keep this craft alive. Uh, I have a huge amount of respect for them. And that's, uh, uh, you know, they're they're certainly providing some inspiration for me in, in terms of the path that I'm going down. And all of them were incredibly generous with their time and providing me with uh, with insight into what they're doing and suggestions in how to improve what I'm doing. Uh, because of course, you know, as I've as I mentioned to Nick um, in an email later, you know this is something that I'm I'm coming into with with very little education. It's I'm coming into this with a different background than other people. So the way that I'm approaching some of this is not the traditional way of doing things. And sometimes there are better ways of doing things. And it's it's nice to hear from people who are actually doing this and are are successful at it and getting some insight from them and uh, and improving what I'm doing. Same thing with John. Uh, Murphy at the BHI. All of these people have provided me with with some information or or some skills or some some insight into to where I should be going and what I'm doing and and encouraging me. Uh, everybody was was very encouraging with uh, with what I'm doing. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen my watch dial yet, that was uh, a huge hit. My my hand uh, my hand drawn watch dial it was definitely popular. Um, it it will not be a, a regular thing, despite what a few people have suggested. Uh, I will not be releasing official watches with my my horrible handwriting on it. People thought it was kind of fun seeing a seeing a watch that was was very clearly not you know not a very finished and sort of polished thing. 
a lot of people appreciated seeing something that was uh, was halfway being built. Well, it's very kind of Chris to throw together that impromptu gathering for you. Yeah, and if you're if you happen to be interested in that kind of thing, maybe the podcast doesn't interest you, but you want to be able to get together with other like-minded watch nerds, you know, while you're in that area, if you're in London and uh and that kind of thing sounds appealing to you, check out the time for a pint.com website and uh, subscribe to his mailing list because he does send out notifications for when upcoming gatherings are going to be. Uh, you do have to sign up for them ahead of time. Uh, they do usually fill up. He he has a limit on the number of people he usually wants at these. So it is worthwhile signing up for his uh, mailing list and finding out when those when those are coming up. But they're, they're definitely worthwhile. I had a great time chatting with people there. And uh, the stories that I heard from people and everything from uh, seeing people's um you know watches that had been handed down from you know from their fathers or grandfathers and you know how the how people had come across certain collections and it's great just great stories overall about how uh, how people got into what they were what they were collecting so yeah a lot of fun yeah stories really are so much of what fuels the the watch industry and so much of, of culture and and us as a species as well. I'm glad you're able to to get together with so many people while you were over in the UK and, and hear a lot of the, the stories behind so many things and, and so many different pieces. I'm going to be back again in uh, in April by the looks of it. there's um, I think there's another course at uh, the BHI that I'm going to take in April, uh, assuming that I get the time to uh, practice my my skills. So I'm, I'm no longer mangling watches. I'm actually competently servicing them. So uh, I, it looks like I'm going to be back over there again in April and, uh, there's a good chance that Rich and I are going to go back over for Maker Central in May next year. So for those of you who are listening, who were at Maker Central last year and are thinking about going over there this year, hopefully, uh, the two of us turning up doesn't turn you off the idea of showing up this year and, uh, and hopefully we see you there. So yeah, I'll be back, uh, back over and hopefully have a chance to uh, meet up with more people again and meet some of the same people it's been uh it's been nice the last few trips now being able to meet up with people like matt and uh and greg and and some of the other people that uh that we've met over over these trips and i'm looking forward to uh to being able to uh to keep that keep that going thanks for listening to off hours you can find detailed show notes at offhours.show If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under The Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. Yeah, one of the other things that I did was uh, while I was over there, I actually ordered a few um, 6497 clones off of eBay. Um, so I'm going to use them as uh, practice pieces. Practice I'm gonna, nice. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to hack away at those and and do some stuff. I may actually use one of them as a practice piece for doing some modifications as well, mm-hmm. uh, because I know they are very popular f- amongst the uh, the Swiss watch schools for students to go and add things to them and and do things so i know you and i have talked about uh converting them to a free sprung balance and stuff like that so 
that's something I before I would even consider doing that on one of the Eta movements. I might uh, or the Eterna movements that I've got. I might uh, I'm you know maybe I'll sit down with you one uh, one day and take a look at what would be involved in trying to convert one of these sixty four ninety sevens to a free sprung movement because I suspect it would be uh, it would be a good uh, candidate for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Omega has a a variant that uh, I, I like what they they've done with the bridge layout. I think Siegel makes another one that has quite a, quite a nice spin on on it as well. Uh, I think I've seen it in some Korean made watches. I believe the brand was was T Cell. Actually, you know what? This might have been a. Uh, well, let me pull up eBay. This might have been a Siegel movement. Actually, it's a Siegel ST thirty six. I mean, the the sixty four ninety seven has been redone in so many different. Oh, I'm sure it's been. Yeah, yeah I'm sure it's variants. been hacked apart and and done. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the one that you're thinking of. Although I really don't like their blued screws. I'm happy that these ones are blued because the ones that we we got were Swiss, the original Swiss ones, mm. the movements we were working on. They didn't have blued screws. And I do like the look of this with blued screws. But these ones, I think they're using some kind of a a spray technique to blue them. They're not actually heat bluing yeah, them. Exactly. Yeah. And they, I, I really don't like the blue. No, this bridge layout isn't the one that I was, was thinking of. I mean, mm. it's not... Like Patek level finish, but I just um, like with the Omega twenty two eleven, they've got a a better layout for the bridges that's just more more conducive to to working on the piece. And then uh, the Siegel variants I had in mind has dedicated bridge for the escape wheel, and then a bridge for the center and the. Depending on on what flavor of nomenclature you go with, the the second and third or third and fourth wheels. Mm, okay, so I'm I'm just I just pulled up a image of a Omega twenty two eleven. So this one happens to, that looks like the um, the drivetrain bridge also includes the center wheel. Yeah. is that the one you're thinking of? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I'd be interested in seeing. Uh, I'd be interested in seeing what you're thinking of. And there's some nicely done. Um, pieces by number of, of independents over the years oh there's one other thing too i guess on the the 6497 no you ordered 6497 clones or 98 clones 98 are more conducive yeah. to wristwatches i know that they they put the uh because when the crown is in the three o'clock position on the 98 i think the sub dial is on the six o'clock position is that right yeah 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 that doesn't concern me too much i i actually like having the um this the second sub dial in the nine o'clock position. Hmm. I actually prefer that look personally. All right. Anything in particular about it? I, I just like the look of it. Yeah, I like the um I like the the balance. I also like the fact that it's not the way that most people do it. Hmm. Um one of the, one of the things I'm starting to realize when it comes to uh designing watches and stuff like that is that I'm not particularly interested in doing the same thing that everybody else has done just because everybody else has done it that way. You know, like everybody putting like their date window, for instance, at like at the three o'clock position. I if I'm going to put a date window on my my watch, it's probably going to be at like the six o'clock position, for instance, which you don't really see very often. Yeah, six o'clock's my place of choice as well. So it has a yeah. better balance, but I, I prefer no date no date window whatsoever. It's actually my preference. I I agree with you. I prefer no date window either, but um, but I think with the uh, yeah, if I was going to do it, I think it'd be six o'clock. 